This podcast is a production of the Johns Hopkins University Press. To learn more, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals. Thank you for tuning in to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. My name is Brian Shea, and I am the Public Relations and Advertising Manager in the Journals Division. We listen to discussions about climate change in the mainstream media on a regular basis. Modern fiction studies place the topic under the microscope in a recent special issue titled Anthropocene Fictions, using a geological term for our current epoch. MFS Associate Editor Robert Marzak wrote the introduction to the issue and joined us for a discussion. Thank you for joining me today, Bob. Tell me, how did this collection of essays, including your introduction, which was so educational for me, how did all this come about? Uh, well, well, first, thanks for, for doing this, Brian. Uh, it's a pleasure to mm-hmm. be talking with you today. So how did it come about? Well, I had done an issue about 10 years ago for Modern Fiction Studies on, on a kind of eco-criticism. We published some of the, the first work when Rob Nixon was working on his, his book, which came out two years later, his uh, book on slow violence and the environmentalism of the poor. But over the course of the last decade, the scene around issues of climate change has become much more pronounced uh, than it was then. So you know, back in 2009, you, you would see some reporting of climate change in major newspapers, but not too much. But today, and over the course, I'd say, of the last two or three years, almost every day there, there's something on climate change in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to do something specifically on the Anthropocene, because that's become such a powerful metaphor. It's, it's a concept that's been around sporadically through, through most of the 20th century, but it really started to, to make scientific headway in, in 2000 with the publication of Paul Kreutzmann's work, which originally came out in um, the IGP newsletter and uh, the journal Nature. But it's, it's a very short piece. It's only about a page and a half long. But he suggests that we stop referring to the period that we're in as the Holocene, which mm-hmm. has been the, the period that, that's been in existence for about the last 11,650 years, roughly. And that's the period in which, which humanity, as we know it, that's, that's when we begin our history, our art, our literature, our creativity, uh, our understanding of the world, our relationship to, to ecosystems as we understand them today. And humans have been around for about, you know, People debate the modern human, how long we've been around here, mm-hmm. uh, for something like for something like 200,000 years. But but our world as we know it has been made possible by this temperate time in the world's history. So the Holocene refers to that time where things are gradual, but you didn't have huge catastrophic events, and then humans humans were able to flourish. We have. Ontologically, in fact, our, our sense of narrative, our sense of temporality, our sense of a relationship to one another and to the earth. And of course, I'm making huge generalizations here, but this is, this is one of the things that I think is important about the idea of the Anthropocene. During this era of the Holocene, th- this is where, where our senses developed in very different ways from, from before. And a number of scientists have pointed this out. But when Crutzen started using this term, uh, and actually, it was Eugene Stormer, his, his colleague, who first used, used the term a few years before. They, they were attempting to say that we no longer live in this, this safe space anymore. We need to stop referring to our era as the Holocene. We need to start using this term Anthropocene. 
Now, it, it took a, a while, but roughly about eight or so years later, the, the humanities and the social sciences started to pick up this term. And the humanities are doing really interesting work with the concept of the Anthropocene today because, it, you know, the humanities is a tool for, for thinking and criticizing and being creative about what it means to be human. So the Anthropocene marks a fundamental shift in what it means to be a human being and what it means to relate to a planet, to an ecosystem. Now, these are huge, grand claims. These are huge, grand narratives that, say, the discipline of literary study uh, have been rightly criticizing for the course of the last 30, 40 years. But something about the Anthropocene signals to us that the, the game has changed, that we are seeing a geological force. Humans have become a geological force. They are affecting the planet. It is, it is a planetary movement. It is a planetary force. And that's unusual. That's not, you know, humans didn't do that before. If you, go, if you went back uh, thousands of years, and of course there's some debate about this, about where to mark the beginning of the Anthropocene, if you start with the Industrial Era or if you go back even to 10,000 years to the beginning of agriculture. Nonetheless, there, there has been a, a shift in, in terms of what some scientists would refer to as a safe operating space for humanity. We are, we are seeing the limit of that safe operating space now. And because our, we, we are such a force in a way that we were not before, this term, I think, is really crucial. So instead of having an issue, say, about a general uh, environmental matters or, say, even climate change, I wanted to do Anthropocene to mark the importance of that, that concept. How important is it for a journal like MFS, I know there are regularly special issues, to take on a special issue on a topic like this, which really delves deeply into so many aspects of it? One of the things that I, that I think is so crucial for literary studies, for, for modern fiction, for, for our journal, we show the, the importance of the study of literature to these large, grand challenges, to use a popular term from the sciences now. There's a a real concern as we reach limits, as we pump more CO2 into the atmosphere and continue to do that, even though we know that this is going to make for an unlivable existence mm -hmm. uh, within 100 years, if we have a business-as-usual uh, scenario. When, when you're confronted with those, those kind of grand challenges, it, it immediately seems as if the people that do the important work are the people that are working in politics, that are working in the sciences, that are gathering information. And then you have a concern that, that people are working in, in the creative disciplines and the humanities, that often they might become handmaidens, offering a more convincing way to get people to be concerned about climate change. That they're not really dealing with the, the grit, the hard data, that they're not coming up with technological solutions. So, I think a journal like Modern Fiction Studies can show the intimate relationship between storytelling, narrative construction, what you can understand, how stories build new pathways, how stories show the limitations to forms of intelligibility that have come into existence. One of the things that, that a novelist and actually former anthropologist like Amitav Ghosh does in his recent work He's been pointing out the fact that literature developed, the modern novel as we know it, developed around an idea that, that you need to make things believable, you need to make things realistic. So the novel is very different, say, from the old epic tradition where you had connections to grand worlds, where you had multiple worlds taking place in, in an epic, whereas in a novel you have a kind of slow, gradualist 
narrative to make it believable. So part of that, he notices, comes out also of scientific movements, where there's a gradualist view of, of the history of the Earth, of geology. And for the longest time, it was difficult for, for scientists to believe that there could be these sudden ruptures. And that's part of, that's part of what it means to be in the Holocene. Everything is gradually moving along. You don't see these, these sudden upheavals. Climate change is a sudden upheaval, and it's caused by humans. It's anthropocentric, uh, hence the importance of the term anthropocene. And we need new narratives. Part of what Ghosh points out is that in reading novels, we've become accustomed to, to a type of narrative, to a type of storytelling, that needs to be plausible. And these, these gigantic uh, uh, kind of ex machina events aren't seen as plausible in, in the novel. And he is encouraging people to, to try to think how we could have different forms of literature. So you have, you have people like uh, Margaret Atwood and Jeanette Winterson and Ian McEwen writing about climate change, but then also writing about how we can have collectives of people. This is one of the things that Ghosh points out. We need, of course, and, and this is pretty much common knowledge if you work with the politics of climate change and, you know, the UN climate change conferences and so on, that, that we need collectivities of people to address this problem. We can't do it as individuals. Ghosh points out that a, a serious block to thinking how to do collectives are novels that tend to focus on the individual. One of, one of the things I think that's really interesting that Rob Nixon does is he points out the importance of novels that talk about collective. And some of these novels have been overlooked because they come across as not being compelling because they don't follow an individual through from, from beginning, middle, to end. So I think what, what, what modern fiction studies can do is to, to kind of put a wedge in here to, to open up and talk about the novel novelists that are open up uh, that are that are introducing these different kind of pathways that are criticizing the the way we focus on a kind of individual or kind of identity politics where this is this is a much larger issue that that demands a very different understanding of of how we generate fiction what kind of things did you learn from the essays that uh, that you had that you read and put together for the issue one of the I, I, I really like uh, and my, my, my colleague, George Hansley, uh, his essay, he, he's, he reminds me uh, not to be so down on humans, and I tend to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, when, you, when you work in this discipline, and, and the more you read, the, the, more, the, the more depressed you get, and, and you think, man, like, I don't, I don't want to study humans anymore. I want to study ecology. I want to study biodiversity. I'm more interested in that because these creatures, these non-human life forms that are so important, that are dying off, that we're killing off, they're not invading the entire planet, and they're not the, the cause of the Anthropocene. So, like, Henley reminds me that this, it's, it's important to break down barriers between the human and the non-human world. But it's also important to be critical of this move, because in this move, you tend to implicitly say that, that humans are depraved, and that shuts off imaginative pathways for, for thinking, rethinking what it means to be human. So he offers a very powerful and salient and giving critique that to critique what it means to be human in the Anthropocene, it's not enough. We have to temper that, temper that with a kind of understanding of, of humans as, well, and this is the, the big potential of the humanities, that the humanities can offer renewed hope. Literature can offer renewed hope. Literature can offer different ways of being. That's one of its, its primary powers. 
So for all the fighting that you want to do against the human and a struggle for ecological health, that's that's not enough. We need to think, as he praises it, a kind of post-secular struggle for human meaning and giving viability to, to what it means to be human. In terms of, say, like the Brandon Jones' work, just to offer a second example here, it's really important to be able to combine different passions, different concerns, different frameworks, different disciplinary outlooks. So a lot of people in environmental work, environmental studies, are are very passionate about social justice, uh, environmental justice. On the other end, you have a lot of people who are very passionate about the loss of biodiversity, for instance. The two of these have a history of clashing. And what he teases out of Ghosh's novel is the way in which Ghosh, Ghosh thinks through multiple narratives in, in a novel like The Hungry Tide, where you have an ecologist, you have somebody who's concerned with social justice, you have you have another set of, of narratives, I think there are about five narrators in that book, and you get you get to see very different world come into existence through these narratives. It teaches us how to really rethink what it means to be an inhabitant and what it means to be concerned about social justice, what it means to be concerned about the loss of species, and how can we bridge that gap? How can the two work together? And he he comes up with a a kind of term he uses, post-colonial utopianism, which offers something that didn't actually exist in terms of the the actual case that this novel's about, the uh, Morjabai massacre. That did not end well. But in the novel, we're given a kind of utopian outlook of a community that can live in a relation that's not uh, destructive to an ecosystem. And I think that's you know that's one of the power one of the powers of literature because literature is, is is historical but it's more than history it offers the the what if you know what if we could we could do these things differently and that's something that Ghosh also points out in his in his uh, most recent work as well. What kind of impact do you hope that these essays have in future discussions on this topic? I'll just be selfish and speak a little bit about what I what I said in my intro. I essentially had two audiences in mind when I was when I was working on this and actually thinking about the whole issue, and that's people working literary literary studies, of course, the humanities, but also scientists. So I brought a lot of science in because I, I like to consider myself as as a critical science studies scholar as well. Uh, or at least I, I hope to aspire to, to being such a thing. But there's a lot of work that's going on in the sciences, that, sciences that's extremely important, but overlooked, not often talked about in any specific way in the humanities. So I wanted to wanted to load the introduction with quite a lot of that. Details like the Millennial Ecosystem Assessment Report, which came out in 2005. And that was a report that generated, among many things, among, among lots of information about the, the status of biodiversity across the planet, it, uh, scholars working on that, and they weren't humanity scholars, they were kind of social scientists and scientists, produced four narratives. These were scenarios about what would happen in the future if we followed different pathways. And the, the scenarios are, are extremely important. It's the first time that you had a global organization trying to come up with uh, concern for what might happen down the road on the planet. And they are incredibly grand narratives. And I think that the humanities need to come back to conceptions of grand narrative. We moved away from that, uh, as I suggested earlier on. But in these, these scenarios, there's one called Order from Strength, which talks about a world in which nations become insular and, and walled and, and fight against one another. And it's 
very close to what, what we're moving towards right now in the U.S. But there's other, other uh, scenario uh, called Techno Garden, which is the idea that you have lots of large geoengineering projects across the planet in order to save the planet. There's, there's another one called uh, a kind of ecological mosaic, uh, which is more local-based. But these are narratives that are, are kind of put together with, with using algorithms. And I wanted to include that to give that to people in the humanities to get people in the humanities to think about, we already have these large organizations starting to produce grand narratives. And those grand narratives are going to affect our future. In, in our discipline, we know that narratives are at the heart of how cultures relate to one another, to refer back to, to Said from you know, back in the culture of pluralism. Narratives are at the heart of this struggle for how we understand other people the power to narrate or to block other narratives from coming into existence is at the heart of, of culture and imperialism. I would include in environmental studies as well. So I think the humanities need to be concerned and literary scholars need to be concerned with the, the reintroduction of uh, large grand narratives to offer criticism of them and to offer alternative grand narratives. I don't know if many audiences from the sciences will read this, because they, they do tend to overlook, I think, a lot of work in the humanities, but that, that, that's been breaking down. But I, I wanted to include the power of literature to affect these transformations. And we are specialists in studying narratives. And if narratives create social reality, then those that are adept, that have a good, good strong history of, of talking about narratives, can be very important to the future as we think different possibilities for human existence. Well, that's great. Uh, like you said, there's always some news popping up in mainstream media, so it's great to take a look at this from a different perspective and within some great detail. Sure, no, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. Please visit press.jhu.edu journals for more information.